Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Well, here we go again, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, presented by Sullivan's Brewing Company. I'm John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. We are happy to have you listening in today. we got a, a really good podcast today, I believe. These are good times for the Bills and their fans, obviously, so we've got a lot to talk about, and uh, we're going to get right to it in a moment. We're going to be joined by Rich Deitch. He went to UB, University at Buffalo. I've known him for several years. Right now, he is a uh, covers sports media for uh, theathletic.com. Are you familiar with that website, The Athletic? It's definitely worth your while. Rich Deitz covers sports media, NFL media for theathletic.com. We'll talk with him about that. He just finished off a, uh, a short stint as a sports talk radio host in Toronto at uh, Sportsnet 590 in Toronto. We'll talk with him about that. He spent 20 years writing for Sports Illustrated about a variety of topics. But again, sports media is his area of expertise. We'll talk with Rich Deitz about that in a couple of moments here on the podcast. Also, going to join by a brewer, Rudy Watkins of Buffalo. He is the head brewer at Thin Man Brewing Company in Buffalo. He and Sullivan's teamed up on the 11-day power play Kolsch Brew that came out a couple of months ago. We'll talk with Rudy Watkins about that. He's got some interesting stories about his transition from a home brewer to a professional brewer. It's pretty amazing. I'm sure it's the dream of a lot of folks tuned into the podcast today. Hey, I like brewing beer. Why can't I get paid to do it? Well... We're going to talk with Rudy about that coming up in just a few minutes. We're going to talk a lot about the Buffalo Bills, obviously. And, of course, they're coming off their huge win last Sunday night at Kansas City. Was it a statement win against the Kansas City Chiefs? Did they need to make a statement? I I almost I don't, I don't believe in statement wins, i got to say. I just don't think that means anything. Everybody, oh, it's a statement. The Bills made a statement. What is a statement? I, they made a ton of statements last year, right? 13 wins, a couple of playoff wins. If there was statement, if there were statements to be made, they made them last season. They're beyond that. That's how good I think they are. They're beyond making a statement, announcing their arrival. They've arrived. They're good. Right now, after the win at Kansas City, right now they are the preeminent team in the AFC. I think they're the team to beat in the AFC right now. The time for statements is long past. Now, There's a lot of season left to go. I mean, a whole lot of season left to go, right? Five games in, 12 games left. That's more than two-thirds of the season left to play. I thought Micah Hyde, the Bills veteran safety, uh, captured it perfectly post-game minutes after the final gun at Kansas City Monday night. On the radio broadcast, Micah Hyde was asked about, hey, what does this mean? You, you know, you're, you've won four in a row. You beat the, you knocked off the Kansas City Chiefs and things are rolling and an AFC championship, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Micah Hyde said, whoa, whoa, bro. It's still only five games. Bro, it's still only five games. I laughed out loud. He's right, right? Two-thirds of the season left, more than two-thirds of the season left. They're, they're really good after the first five games. They are excellent. They're doing everything well for the most part. But it is only five games. There's the bulk of the season left to come. So I think it's important to have that kind of perspective. And it was good to hear that veteran safety Micah Hyde has that kind of perspective after uh, after the big win in Kansas City on Monday night. Got to say this too, and I'm not I'm not trying to take away from the Bills' victory. It was a, a really a good, significant win. Maybe the best regular season win the Bills have had in several years. Right, to win at Kansas City the way they did, it was huge. But I do feel like the Kansas City Chiefs are diminishing a little bit. Maybe they've passed their prime. Look. You look at that roster, and uh, the defense is is lacking. They don't have a great defense, and the Bills exploited that. Patrick Mahomes is great. His weapons are solid. 
but the Bills handled them. I do think the Chiefs are diminishing, and maybe their best days in this current era anyway, their best days could be behind them. That does not take anything away from the Bills' uh, accomplishments Sunday night in Kansas City. They were fantastic. Not right from the start, but pretty much. Now look, the Buffalo offense has been flying, right? They're averaging more than 34 points per game, scoring 34.4 points per game. That's how good they are. Josh Allen, I thought Sunday night turned in an MVP caliber performance. He's done that uh, several times over the last couple of years, but maybe no no more so than this past Sunday. Threw for three touchdowns, ran for one. He was nearly insto- unstoppable. And, and he didn't rack up a ton of numbers as far as attempts, completions, but when he threw it, he threw it with authority. He threw great passes. And more than anything, Josh, I think, has demonstrated that he is totally in control of this offense now. He really is. He's got full command of the offense. Uh, He has learned at the foot of Brian Dable, the Bills offensive coordinator, learned what works, what doesn't work, learned to assert his own personality on the offense. And I don't think this can be overstated. The Bills are reaping the benefits of the fourth year as Brian Dable uh, being the offensive coordinator right now, right? There's familiarity with the scheme. Uh, Dable has a wide variety. I mean, so much diversity in the Buffalo offense. I didn't do a count, but I, I, I'm guessing they had at least 10 or 12 different offensive formations and personnel combinations in that game against Kansas City. They can do whatever they want. They can figure out a way. If you're doing this, we'll do this. And they're comfortable switching around and throwing a bunch of formations at their opponents because they're so comfortable in the system, Josh primarily. I think it's a testament, though, to Brian Dable and to the theory of, hey, the more you stick around as a coaching staff, the more you implement your uh, system – the better off your team will be. That's happening on offense. It really is. I think the Bills are so versatile and so varied on offense. They are very tough for opponents to stop. Defense. Again, number one rankings all over the place on defense. They, for two weeks weeks now, are ranked as the best defense in the National Football League. Again, testament to the coaching. This time, Leslie Frazier on the defensive side of the ball. He's in his fifth year with the Bills. Uh, They know what's expected. They know what they're doing. But a couple of important things. First of all, they played defense against Kansas City, that high-flying Kansas City offense, without one of Buffalo's best defensive players. Matt Milano was out, inactive in the game. And that's how good the Bills' defense is. They managed to do it well. They also have established a tremendous rotation on the defensive line. Really a great rotation. Eight, nine players play significant snaps, 40% or more. They're all fresh when they play. They are very often playmakers when they play. They're reaping the benefits of that. And they did this against Kansas City with basic straight-up defense. No blitzing. Not one blitz package called by the Buffalo Bills in the victory at Kansas City. Um, And that exactly goes to what they were trying to do uh, when they entered this past offseason. They keep a four-man pass rush. And they drop everybody else, seven, uh, seven, at least seven, back into coverage against a great passing attack that the Kansas City Chiefs have. And they get good pressure with a four-man pass rush. They had two sacks, but great pressure on Patrick Mahomes all night long without the benefit of blitzing. They really do have it going on defensively. I think they do. I think they really do. Now, approaching the um, game at Tennessee next Monday night, do they let down after the big win at Kansas City? Is there a letdown in the works? Well, who can say, right? But this needs to be said. Under Sean McDermott, now in his fifth year, very rarely have the Bills overlooked an opponent, let down against an opponent, uh, you know, not been ready to play. That might be McDermott's strong strong point, getting his team ready to play. And I think that'll go a long way towards playing Nashville or playing Tennessee in Nashville 
this Monday night. And by the way, Titans are good. Playoff team a year ago. I get it. They're not that good. They're not that good. They run the ball extremely well. They don't throw it that well. Uh, they're limited. They're not as strong a team nearly as Kansas City was last Sunday night. Defensively, they're okay. Good, not great. They're a capable team. I think the Bills can handle them. I think the Bills are the best team in the NFL right now. I really do. We'll talk more about the Nashville game or the Tennessee game on the podcast. We're going to talk a lot more about the Buffalo Bills and about the NFL and broadcasting in the NFL in general. Do you know, by the way, the Bills averaging 34.4 points per game, giving up just uh, 12.8 points per game. That's the best differential. Bills lead the league with a point differential of of plus 108 through the first five weeks. But, of course, as Micah Hyde said, bro, it's only five weeks. Got to keep that in mind. Hey, um, this weekend, as the Bills head to uh, Nashville to play the Titans on Sunday, we're going to be in Nashville. And this Sunday, a special uh, Buffalo Bills uh, takeover of a great bar down in the lower Broadway area. The Tin Roof, 346 Broadway in Nashville. A Bills fan takeover from uh, 3 p.m. in the afternoon uh, and then it continues on. I'm going to be there myself, 7 to 9 p.m., talk with fans. Nothing formal, but an informal meeting with Bills fans. Again, it's the Tin Roof on Lower Broadway in Nashville this Sunday night. I'll be there 7 to 9 p.m., but it goes on all day. Hope to see you there. If you're making the uh, going to make the trip to Nashville to see the Bills, and I know a lot of Bills fans will be there, hope to see you there. It's the place to be. The Tin Roof, Lower Broadway in Nashville this Sunday. I'll be there 7 to 9 p.m. All right, podcast coming up. We're going to talk with Rich Deitch, who covers uh, media, sports media. We'll talk with him about sports media, in particular NFL media. Rich Deitch coming up on the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. The Sullivan's Pro Football Podcast continues. Our special guest, Rich Deitch. He covers uh, sports media, for uh, covers the NFL media, actually, for the Athletic. He also is a former uh, sports writer here in Buffalo, uh, went to UB, University at Buffalo, been working in Toronto, a long stint with Sportsnet 590 Radio in Toronto, hosts his own sports media podcast. Rich is with us, 20 years at Sports Illustrated, got to mention that as well, Rich. Thanks for coming on with us. Um, the radio deal, the daily radio deal at Sportsnet is over. You had an opportunity to work with a guy who I consider, and I've never met him, but I consider your former partner, Bob McCown, as maybe the greatest sports talk radio host I've ever heard. What, how was that experience for you? Well, first, John, it's good to be with you. I mean, I graduated from UB in 1933, so it's, it's great to, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great to be back. Uh, not 1933, but clo- it feels close to it. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, so, Bob McCain, you know, the, the, the great thing about working with Bob McCallan, um, as an American coming up in, um, to work with him in Canada was, you know, I didn't grow up listening to him. So, he was very new and fresh to me. There were a lot of people on the market who had listened to him, you know, since they were little kids. And he really was for them, essentially the soundtrack of sports, you know, for their life. He was, he was, um, he was essentially daily viewing destination or destination listening, I should say, um, for people who would drive home from work. He was very much a drive time host for most of his career. So to sit next to him in the studio and to come at it as more of an observer as opposed to like a fan was just really interesting because I, I felt like I could look at him and sort of look how he does what he does objectively as opposed to be starry eyed you know, let's say having listened to him my whole life and I would see him in a different way. I just saw him as, um, as Bob McCown, as opposed to like capital B, capital M. Uh-huh. And so what I realized is he just, he was so innate in terms of his, um, his ability to, um, to bring 
people in and out of breaks, to tease like segments that were coming up, to listen to what a speaker said during an interview and then ask an incisive question. He didn't do a ton of prep, um, although he probably watched more television than he would ever let on. Um, <laughs> he, he knew when to be an entertainer. He knew when to sort of go to curmudgeon mode or, or to sort of, uh, you, you know, to sort of be more uh, darkness than light. But at the same time, he was self-deprecating, so he can make fun of himself. So he wasn't sort of overbearing. Uh, in short, he just really understood the medium, and he was a great performer. He just understood how to perform during those segments. And you are correct. I mean, having done a lot of radio across the U.S., um, having um, worked with some people in the U.S. before, obviously, I got up uh, – to Canada, he's about as good a radio performer as I've ever seen. I think there are just some people who intrinsically um, sort of understand the pace of audio. The other thing, too, and it's not an insignificant thing, he had an amazing voice, and that does help. He just really – he had a voice that um, came across as, like, authentic and big and, like, powerful. And when you listen to him, you felt like something important was coming. And so it was great. It was, it was a lottery ticket job. I have no regrets at all about taking it. And uh, uh, I spent about 19 months in the studio with Bob and three and a half years at Sportsnet. And to those 19 months with him was was awesome. It was a it was an education in radio. Uh, three and a half years doing sports talk radio in Toronto. How did you like that experience? And did it meet your expectations? What did you think of being a sports talk host? It was great. I mean, you know, most of my my career at Sports Illustrated um, was obviously as a writer. And um, when I got to SI, I covered a lot of traditional sports, tennis, the Olympics, uh, women's basketball, some college football. And then eventually I really started specializing in media. So this was the first time in my life where I was treated as talent, which was just interesting. It was like, you know, I was treated as a performer as opposed to the person who was writing about yeah. those who perform. And that was interesting, both good and bad. You know, the pay obviously is a lot better, but at the same time, you're sort of, you know, you have to follow sort of what management's directive is. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that I learned about that, um, you know, is, is very different than, um, than writing. But at the end of the day, like just to, and you know, this John from given what you did all your years, just to have a microphone and to be able to, um, to be able to say something and have people interested in what you had to say, whether they agreed or disagreed with it, like you really learn like kind of what a, uh, what a privilege that is, because it, it really, you are really fortunate um, to be in that position because there are so many millions and millions and millions of sports fans who love talking about sports, but there's very few of us who actually get to talk about it. And, and those opinions or those thoughts get broadcast. So I loved it. I also, you know, I was always one who wanted to be a co-host or what they call in the business, sort of the B chair, you know, you're an A chair, you're a host. I, I, I you got to know your strengths. And to me, it was never about wanting to host. I wanted to be the person who helped facilitate a great show. You know, if you want to think about it, like in terms of like, you know, basketball or something like that, you know, I liked being Scottie Pippen as opposed to Jordan. I'm not a Jordan on that. And it was great. It was great to have that opportunity to sort of help amplify the host and to help amplify the show. And um, it was great. I mean, again, like I think both of us have to be fortunate. I mean, for somebody to pay you, to like talk about sports is insane. It used to be the same thing. I covered seven Olympics at sports illustrated. And a lot of times, like whether I'd be in Athens or I'd be in Beijing or something like that. And I'd be staring at like these, like, you know, beautiful scene in front of me. And I'd like, 
just like I'd, I'd stop for a second just to appreciate like this is insane. Somebody's literally paying me to be here. I'm not paying a dime for this. Um, and so that's how I try to approach sports. Then I just try to approach it as like, you know, you're really so fortunate to get this opportunity and just enjoy it as long as you can enjoy it. I had the similar experience this past uh, weekend, Rich, in Kansas City. And there were, you know, thousands of Bills fans who took money out of their own pocket and bought tickets and got a hotel and went to Kansas City to see that Sunday night game. And I was in the stadium keeping an eye on this, you know, an hour or so before kickoff. And I thought, holy cow, I'm getting paid to be here. Uh, You know, I have a job to do, obviously, but all these people have gone deep into their pockets to get here to watch this special Sunday night game. And somebody's paying me to be here. You do feel fortunate, don't you? Yeah, you got one of the things that like, I mean, again, all even in media, you got to deal with you got to deal with just a lot of BS sometimes like management can suck sometimes, to be honest. And like, it's a very paranoid profession because it's all subjective and it's someone's opinion of you and your performance. You know, it's either someone's opinion of my writing for me or someone's opinion of how I am on air. But I've always thought and again, I'm not I'm not saying I've done this 100 percent, but I I have tried my best to do this is you have to sometimes just step back and realize the larger picture of, you know, you've been afforded what is an amazing sort of opportunity in life to be paid to literally do something like you said, that people spend hard earned money to see. And so I try at least um, especially as I've gotten older, I might not have appreciated this when I was younger, but as I've gotten older, I really have tried to sort of like step back and just sort of reflect that, like, you know, like I really have been uh, afforded like just some incredible good fortune, even right down to like, you know, when I graduated from grad school and got an internship at SI for kids, um, I didn't want to write for, uh, for, for kids. It wasn't sort of, it hadn't been my sort of dream, but like that job got me into sports illustrated and eventually got me hired into sports illustrated. So you sort of reflect back and you look and, and you recognize like, man, you know, we're, we're very, very fortunate. And I can totally understand. Like I watched that obviously Bill's, uh, chiefs game on Sunday night. It looked like just an incredible atmosphere and like, you know, in your position to be able to be there and to, to, to call the games is awesome. And, you know, I think this, it's a good reminder. This one of the reasons I like to be around young people is sort of um, it's great to be around like a 23 year old or a 20 year old who wants to get into the business. And they're so passionate about it. You know what I mean? They're romanticized it a little bit, but they were just more than that. They're just passionate about, it. they would kill to have an opportunity. And it's a great reminder for you not to be cynical about like the great opportunities that you have. Rich, uh, you've made most of your career based on covering uh, sports media. Uh, in fact, that's a lot of what you do for The Athletic. I- I'm interested in your thoughts on the Buffalo Bills. Uh, this week, in between an appearance on Sunday Night Football against the Chiefs and coming up Monday Night Football against Tennessee, I don't know if there are any ratings out yet from Sunday, but in general, how do you think the Bills stack up as a national television draw? Yeah, well, they've, they've improved significantly in the last uh, two years. You know, the national television draws, John, as you know, by and large, are obviously Dallas. That's the most that's the that's the biggest national viewership team. There's a reason why network executives want the Cowboys on their schedule. The Packers, obviously, are always a traditional viewership team. The Steelers, you know, for a long, long time, it was the Patriots. Obviously, it's now the Bucks because they have Brady Saints uh, very much during the Breeze era. But usually what it corresponds to is it corresponds to a quarterback who is a star in the league, who people from outside that city are interested in seeing, either interested in terms of I'm interested in that quarterback because they're great. I'm interested in the quarterback because I play fantasy. I'm interested in that quarterback because I gamble, you know, whatever the reason is. 
And so Josh Allen obviously is one of the ascending quarterbacks in football, just like Mahomes obviously is at the top of that chart. And the Bills have a very exciting offensive team. So they score points, which is generally speaking, along with marketing quarterbacks, the NFL wants to market offense. Like right. they don't, you know, any anytime you watch the NFL, you know, you're not seeing, oh, it's Khalil Mack versus Tyrone Matthew. You know, <laughs> right. it's Josh Allen versus Patrick Mahomes. That's how the league markets itself. So I think the Bills have become in the last two years, John, very, very attractive. That's why you're seeing them on, uh, get far more primetime games. They have a disadvantage in that the market is small. Um, in terms of like total population, although Buffalo is a phenomenal TV market, they over-index on like their population. So you're always going to get a crazy household share for the Bills. So if you're a television programmer, yeah, like, you know, it's not New York or Chicago, but you're getting so many people within that city that you're still getting a pretty good number. So I would think, you know, if you want to rank it, the Bills are absolutely now in the top 10 of the league in terms of attractiveness for the networks, and that should be the case as long as they continue to um, uh, to be a team that's a legitimate Super Bowl or playoff threat. I think they'll be that way as long as Josh Allen continues to play as he does. And I would expect um, heading forward, John, next year, whether it's Sunday night football or Monday night football, uh, you know, Thursday's a little bit different because that's just a sort of essentially a rivalry thing, or the 4:25 p.m. slot the double header slot, which is the most uh, valuable property in television, you'll see the bills uh, uh, in those slots because I think they have become one of the teams that um, that networks feel can draw. Again, they're not going to be the Packers or the Cowboys yet or, uh, or the Steelers, but I think you know after that first tier of all-time viewership teams, I think now the bills are in that next tier. I wonder, um, the Bills have um, these two games, and then coming up in December, first week of December, a Monday night home game against New England at yeah. home, uh, primetime TV at home. I wonder uh, how much, I don't say it's a determining factor, but it makes for great pictures on television, the Buffalo Bills at home in uh, Highmark Stadium this year. It just is, it, you don't see TV like that. I think it's attention getting to see a crowd in such a frenzy and so much color. I really think it's something special here in Western New York. Yeah, I, I agree. Bills Mafia is a great crowd. Uh, the optics uh, and the visuals of that crowd are great. That stadium rocks when it's filled, it's loud, it's uh, vibrant. And so, television, you know, TV directors, TV producers want that. Um, it snows, and that's always a positive. Now, again, if it's snowing to the point where visibility is not good for the networks, they don't want that. But they love the tableau of, you know, a little bit of snow on the field because it makes for great pictures. It makes you think of, you know, Packers and, uh, you know, Jim Taylor and Bart Starr. That's what that's how the league sort of is marketed itself. So, yes, I think in that sense, I think. I think it's a good I, I think that is an interesting game. I would say this, John, the one thing for that game in particular, the Patriots can't be out of it because the one thing that really is not attractive to a national audience is, you know, a 10 and one team versus a, a three and seven team. Although here's my one caveat. The reason why the NFL is different than any other league is that generally speaking, like every game matters over the 17. It's also um, between fantasy and gambling, the most bet on uh, league. And so. Pretty much every game, even if it's a game of insignificance, has significance for someone. But yeah, I mean, if you're Monday Night Football, honestly, you're just hoping that the Patriots are still mathematically alive so that that game has meaning. Because when the Bills and Patriots play, as a general rule, that game has meaning based on history. Sure.
Um, all right, you mentioned the, the Patriots. We're a couple of weeks removed now from a, a game by Tom Brady and the Bucks at New England. Um, amazing buildup to the game. I wonder, was it overdone? Was it overkill, the amount of attention focused uh, primarily by NBC on that game? They did the NBC Nightly News from uh, Foxborough, what, the Friday night before the game. It was crazy. Today's show, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. here's the thing. Like, for an audience, is it overkill? Of course. For a network, is it overkill? No. You can never publicize the game enough. I mean, there's a reason they pay billions of dollars for these contracts. And if you're NBC, honestly, I, I, I think I'm a realist. I just think you have to bring all your assets and all your um, everything that sort of comes with NBC Universal to make that feel like an event. So you bring the Today Show, you bring the nightly news. Yes, is John like if I step back, like is it ridiculous that the Buffalo, uh, that the that the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus the New England Patriots is like the lead story of the nightly news? Yeah, of course, that's that's insanity. But NBC is doing this for a reason, and I would say it worked for them. You know, if you're NBC, I think you got to feel like. Um, Everything we did was smart because you got so many eyeballs to that game. And it's, I will say this, I don't want to, I never want to defend a network, but I'll defend their thinking. Okay. There, there are just few, there are very few sporting events, John, that can cross over into popular culture with casual sports fans or just your average American. And the average American has probably heard of Tom Brady and they can wrap their hands around Tom Brady returning to the team he played for for 20 years for the first time. So if you're NBC, you're really trying to capitalize, not necessarily on the diehard NFL fan who you know is going to watch, but you're just trying to get the extra eyeballs of people who might choose that game as opposed to, let's say, watching Netflix that night. Well, this brings me right to the story you wrote about the game prior to the game. And you talked to the NBC producer, Fred Godelli, and his quote was, this game transcends sports. Did yeah, it's it really? a lot, a lot, no, but it, but it, yeah, I mean, you've talked to enough people in television, John, their, their job, their job is to hype their product. Um, yeah. I mean, I like Adele. I think Adele is the best uh, football producer out there and has been for a long time, but listen, his job is to promote his product. He wants people to watch his game. So you're going to talk in, in sort of hyperbole like terms when it comes to that stuff. I would say that it probably transcended the, the NFL in some ways and that the, Brady Belichick story is about as big an NFL story as it gets, but no, like to, to, to think somehow that the uh, Tom Brady returning uh, to new England, like, um, you know, should be the topic of like a congressional hearing or something going on (laughs) in Washington DC is of course absurd, but you know, part of the part of television, John is to sort of promote your product. So if you're Gidelli, you have to make that game feel bigger than life and for NBC I will you know the other thing too the game itself was okay but they got a great ending and one of the things that really bells them out there is that people are going to stay till the end of that game to watch obviously uh the Pats kicker hit the field goal post but one thing if you're NBC um is obviously you're rooting for the beginning of the game so that you can get all the fanfare with Brady returning and then you still want to blow out on either side you don't want 40 to 3 on either side so in NBC's case they they really kind of got what they wanted in that that game was not decided until the final play. Hey, Rich, uh, on, uh, for TheAthletic.com, you wrote early on about the uh, a new development in football broadcasting, the Manning Brothers Megacast. Right. Uh, they've got a couple under their belt. Um, and I, I'd like you to talk about that in particular, but also I, I wonder if you think that the Manning Brothers concept kind of opens up NFL broadcasting to a new way of doing it, maybe – that's what folks are looking for. A couple of guys, whether it's the Mannings or somebody else kind of talking about a game without the formal structured play-by-play color man, uh, you know, paradigm that's been going on for almost half a century now. 
Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's great additive broadcasting. Um, so it's it's a really great option if you don't want to watch the traditional broadcast, the Levy, Riddick, Greasy broadcast. Although having written about television for a long time, what you do find is that 90%, 95% of the audience, John still wants the traditional broadcast. It's, you know, don't go by sort of social media and Twitter for sort of all the praise and love for the Mannings. And the, at the end of the day, the viewership numbers really, pe- people are um, creatures of comfort and they want what they traditionally want. At the same time, I think the Manning Megacast is excellent. Um, what I'm not sure in terms of du- duplication is while you can duplicate the format and you can easily duplicate the concept, I think the reason it works is because of their star. Like I think the reason it works is because Peyton and Eli Manning are both Super Bowl winning quarterbacks. They're brothers. They have a great chemistry. Clearly, if you've ever watched that Manning Megacast, like they just know the game. Like They're able to pick out things that just the average fan cannot see. So I just I don't know if it can be duplicated. I mean, I guess in theory, like, could you get um, uh, just making this up, right? Michael Jordan and LeBron James to do that for an NBA game? I mean, sure. Although basketball is too fast, maybe to do it. So the question would be, could you duplicate it in football? And I think the an- short answer is yes. But I think you really have to have two guys who have the innate chemistry that Peyton and Eli have. And then secondly, have the credentials. That's pretty hard to find um, that combination because the one thing that the Mannings have, which is why you don't have to have a host, is they have the ability to sort of play off each other and sort of make it feel like a conversation. And you know this from being in television. That's not always the case. Like you could put two famous people together in a room, but they might not have chemistry. It just might not. It might not flow. It might not be jazz. So, yeah, the concept can be duplicated, but I do think ESPN has something very unique there because of who those two guys are. Another question on the future of NFL broadcasting, and the the league has a a new deal with all of its television partners that runs, I think, for another, what, 12 years or so. I find it curious that it pretty much maintains the current structure in place. I mean, not too many years ago, there was speculation about the future of broadcasting lies in pay-per-view, and people are going to pay for NFL games, and they can pick their own games, pick their own schedule. That doesn't appear – I mean, you can always do that to a certain extent, but the league seems happy in the current structure with different network partners, and kind of they set the agenda for who will be watching what. Do you agree? yeah, I mean, would you be happy, John, if somebody paid you a million point five billion and two billion dollars? I mean, yes. you, I used to live in Buffalo, John. That money would go very far for a house. <laughs> um, yeah, yes, I think they're extremely happy. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, the NFL is about one thing: it's about revenue. It's about making their owners richer, and so they, because they have the 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 best product probably that exists in the U.S. I mean, depending on how you might think about Netflix, et cetera, um, they they have so much leverage because they have a lot of bidders. And so I think they are always okay with spreading the games out to different broadcast entities um, as they have here. And in terms of sort of heading to the future, they started to do that with their Amazon deal. Next year, Amazon has exclusivity on Thursday night. So basically, if you want to watch a Thursday night game uh, outside of your market, obviously, you have to get Amazon Prime. So that's really the the most interesting thing that the NFL has done with its new deal is um, is to put games for the first time behind a streaming service. And we'll soon see, you know, how many people are interested in watching that. I'm not even sure the NFL cares, quite frankly, that much about how many people watch it. They've already been paid by Amazon. Like that money's already in the, the safe. Um, what will be interesting, though, is the uh, to me, at least from how I look at it, is one, does Amazon get um, – you know, does Amazon get more people in terms of uh, getting people to subscribe to Prime Video? And two, 
does the tech part of it, John, does the latency part hold up? So meaning like does Amazon not have any issues if they're getting increased uh, volume because of the streaming? But yes, I think the NFL is incredibly happy. I mean, they, they got paid a ton of money by everybody. Their, their network partners are really happy. I mean, ESPN is now in the Super Bowl rotation, so they've sort of established themselves and, and, and put themselves in a place where I think they're going to want to stay with the NFL for as long as ever. And even with, uh, even with court cutting and traditional television, obviously uh, getting reduced and reduced and reduced, look at what these companies, NBC, Universal, Viacom, CBS, still paid the NFL. So the NFL still remains just essentially the most important programming that all these networks have. And, um, and I guess if you're an NFL fan, one good thing that exists is that, you know, by and large, these games are still accessible. You know, it's not like soccer where if you're a hardcore, like international soccer fan, you have to buy like 10 streaming services to get everything. As a general rule, the NFL still, you know, by and large, unless you really have to see these Thursday night games on Amazon, by and large, if you have cable or something like that, you still get everything. One more NFL question uh, as we wind things up, Rich. Um, and it deals with one of the NFL's most prominent, not too long ago, television uh, personalities, John Gruden, who had this amazing fall from grace this week, uh, yep. his resignation from the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. Aside from the facts of the issue, I, I, I've i been thinking a lot about that this week and thinking that uh, in some ways, although not really linked to Urban Meyer's issues from a week ago, in a way, to me, Urban Meyer's problems, John Gruden's big problem, there's sort of like it's sort of, sort of kind of more evidence that the old boys, good guys network in sports is over. And is it completely over? Who knows? But uh, those two guys, and I mean, I met John Gruden. He was a pretty good guy, but the, that won't stand anymore. That kind of behavior. Do you agree? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would say that um, I'm not sure I agree that the 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 old boys network is dead. I, I quite, if, to be very blunt, I I would sort of disagree That's with that okay. statement. Yeah. That that said. Um, what is certainly tolerated now uh, when things come out is we're in a different world now in 2021 than we might have been in 1975, 1980, which is obviously progress and a, and a good thing. Um, these are at the moment two different things in terms of Meyer, obviously, and Gruden. Um, Meyer, what, what I, I think if there's a sort of a thread line, John, or a through line between the two, it's what doesn't change is that the NFL sort of enables stars. Right. It allows people to do things and act, generally speaking, in a certain way that most of us in our everyday lives cannot do. Although in Gruden's case, obviously, once these emails became public, there were consequences. He resigned. But I think if he didn't resign, I think he was clearly on his way to uh, Mark Davis firing him. The Urban Meyer one is a little bit different because obviously that gets into sort of um, Meyer's – personal life with you know with his marriage but and this is where it gets into the uh the nfl part the leadership part um if you talk to nfl people as i know you do john it's essentially unheard of for a coach not to fly back with his team so there's a selfishness which has always i think been the case with urban meyer and i think what urban meyer has found is that it's very different to coach a college team than it is a pro team where a college team is sort of really the God of your area. It's a smaller city. There are things you can get away with where people will either protect you or look the other way. That might might not necessarily be the case with um, the NFL Gruden's thing. And I think actually the real even bigger issue than Gruden is sort of that Washington football team investigation. And what we don't know about that. And we got a, glimpse of the emails thanks to the New York Times, but there's still 650,000 emails from that investigation that we have no idea about, which I imagine eventually speaks back to Daniel Snyder and yeah. 
high-ranking Redskins people. But but I, I do think, John, that we are in an era where like there's no way to apologize out of certain things. And that might be to get to your point where some of the old boy network has changed in that let's just sort of play the thought experiment out. Had this happened in 1980, and again, I realized that like we don't have the internet, you don't have discovery, but just play it out for me. Maybe, maybe John Gruden is able to go in a press conference, right, and just do it directly with the press. There's no internet at that time, right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where he apologizes and said, this is not reflective of me. I'm a changed guy. This happened 10 years ago. There's some negative stories, but he survives. You know what I mean? In today's yeah. world, in today's climate, like you're not surviving what, 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 what Gruden is alleged to have done. And in that sense, the world has changed. But I, I would still say that like – you know, the, the NFL still enables very wealthy, generally speaking, very white people. And so I, I'm not willing to say like this whole world has changed, but Gruden, Gruden's fall is certainly a reflection of, of what society is accepting of and, and just um, what is acceptable if you are a public figure. And in Gruden's case, to be the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, that is a massive public position. Yep. One more sports media question for you, not related to the National Football League, the NHL, back on ESPN. And for the first time, the NHL will be on Turner Sports. You wrote about this a week or two ago. Wayne Gretzky, age 60, returns to a TV as a studio host for Turner Sports on the NHL. You write he is not, quote, not a dynamic television figure. You also quote Anson Carter, who told you, He's not just the Wayne Gretzky of hockey. He's Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I, I thought that was a great quote, but very meaningful. I think Gretzky might have something to offer here. What do you think? I, to me, here's what I would say about Gretzky. Um, he is nowhere near, obviously, as dynamic, a, sort of a television presence as, you know, Barkley or Shaquille O'Neal or Kenny Smith and guys like that, or even like Paul Bissonnette and some of these other NHL guys. What he is, though, is he's Wayne Gretzky, right? So he has, like, no one has his resume. His ability, I think, to just recall stories from his career is will be unlike any others. I mean, he's essentially had the greatest hockey career of any human being on planet Earth. And he does, John, he certainly sees the game unlike anybody else. I mean, even though he's not playing, like it's just the way Gretzky will see a game is just different. It's sort of part of what makes him an artist, what makes him genius. So I think what Turner has to do is Turner has to figure out a way to make that studio show where Gretzky's not the centerpiece of it, the way Barkley is. I feel like the other guys sort of have to be more of the um, very external, very um, maybe thought provocative guys. And then Gretzky finds his way into that set to sort of add to it or sort of give some more depth to it. Um, and I think Turner is very smart with their studio shows. Uh, there's a reason Inside the NBA is the greatest studio show of all time. And I think they will set that up. So I think the way to look at it is Gretzky is far and away the most famous guy on that set. But to me, he should be the fourth most important person on the set, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like Bissonette and Carter and Rick Tockett all are much more, have much more external personalities than Wayne. So I think to me, those guys should sort of lead discussions. Those guys will probably say more things that are controversial, provocative, whatever. And then you have Gretzky almost as sort of like the um, the gravitas guy who may come in after those guys talk to sort of offer something. If Turner uses him like that, I think he could be great. If they're expecting him to lead the show, I, I think there's no chance for that show to be good. But I, I have faith in Turner because Turner has proven historically that they understand how to make their – 
studio people good, not just the inside the NBA, but you know, whether it's Candace Parker or whether it's the NBA guys like Garnett or Chris Weber who come on, like everybody does well on the Turner set. And I think it's just because they know how to do studio shows. Um, also, lastly, I think the ESPN studio show has a chance to be good because I think Messier and Chelios are interesting guys who are more outgoing, um, yep. even like then Gretzky and something like that. And then I think Mel- Barry Melrose and Steve Levy have a long history together of being on air together. I think that ESPN show could be really good too. Hey, Rich, thanks for this. I really appreciate it. It's great to catch up with you. Thank you very much. John, it's always, uh, it's always great to see a familiar face from Buffalo, uh, my, uh, uh, the city where I was in my uh, early 20s. In. It, it means that that city will always mean a lot to me. So thanks you for the invite. You were incubated here, right? Is that the way I was, uh, I was, yeah. And then eventually, <laughs> and then eventually just got a little bit too cold. So I headed to that, uh, I headed to that uh, warm weather metropolis known as New York City. <laughs> thanks, Rich. Thanks, John. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. The Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff Podcast continues, and a special guest now, Rudy Watkins, who is head brewer at Thin Man Brewery in Buffalo. Rudy, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I, I read I read somewhere your nickname is Rudy Bob. Is that what people yes. call you, or did they? What's that all about? Yeah, so my, my name is actually Robert, but everyone in the world knows me as Rudy, but sometimes it gets confusing, you know, when, when worlds collide. Uh, so <laughs> some people call me Rudy Bob. Okay. Including my mother sometimes. So yeah. What would, you, what would you like me to call you? I'm just going to call you Rudy. Rudy's fine. Rudy works. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Keep it simple for me. Rudy, yeah. um, you, you're the head brewer, as we said at Thin Man, and you started out brewing as a, as an amateur. You started as a home brewer, right? Tell me about that. How yeah. long ago was that? Yeah. I think like a lot of pro brewers, um, I got my start at home. So I started brewing at home, maybe 2001, something like that. 2001, 2003. Um, you know, and at that point, there were a couple stores in Buffalo that had a great selection of beer, but overall there was a lot less beer available in the country, a lot less variety and all that kind of stuff. And there were a lot of things that, you know, it's fun to drive, take a three hour drive to Cleveland to buy a beer, but um, it's not necessarily something I'm able to do once a week. So if I wanted say a double IPA or something like that at that point in time, uh, it was a lot easier to make it in my driveway than it was to, to drive two States over. And how did you get interested in all in brewing in general? I mean, what was it? Obviously, people like to drink beer, but what was it about the actual brewing process that attracted you? So I, I've always really liked cooking and baking and those sorts of things. And it was kind of a natural extension of that. Um, you know, I was, it was something I was kind of interested in. And then one year for Christmas or my birthday, my parents got me a homebrew kit. Um, and it just kind of the way I kind of describe it to people is I just fell in love with the process. And certainly it's, it's great to have a bunch of beer, but it's kind of like your friend who grows zucchini, you know, and at the end of the summer, they're just like giving you zucchini because they have too darn much zucchini. Um, so it went from like, oh, I'm, I'm making five gallons of beer a month to like, oh, I'm making 15 gallons of beer a week. And uh, that's not really a sustainable thing to consume yourself. So. Sure. Which gives me right to the next question, the transition to brewing as a profession. How difficult was that? And and what did you have to do to make that your profession? You know, it was relatively easy. So it was a very different, we, I I started brewing professionally in 2012. um, And it was a very different time in, in Buffalo brewing at that point. So myself and a couple of friends started another brewery um, and it was was a very small brewery. So, yeah. So we were at that point, we were brewing 50 gallons of beer at a time. Um, So it was, it was a, great opportunity to learn with, I guess, relatively lim- not limited consequences. But if I screw up and I ruin um, $150 worth of ingredients, it's a lot better than if I screw up today and ruin $30,000 worth of ingredients. So it was it was a great opportunity to kind of learn. And we just kind of 
both at my old place and then currently here, just kind of growing and growing and growing and constantly learning and going to conferences and stuff like that and reading books and just trying to, to learn as much as I can. I want to get back to something you said a minute ago about how different the, the beer landscape was in Buffalo when you started in 2012. How has it changed in general? What do you think? You know, I, it's, it's, I was saying, you know, there wasn't, when I started drinking better beer 20 years ago in, in 2001, um, there wasn't a lot of selection available. Um, Flying Bison was the only local brewery. There were some brew pubs as well. Um, but there's, there's so much variety out, um, out there these days in Buffalo. Um, I, I forget the exact number. I think we're somewhere over 35, 40 breweries um, in Erie, Niagara. Um, that's up from one in 20 years. So, you know, it's amazing. You can find anything you want, really. Um, it's, it's great. You know, my, my kind of peers in the brewing industry are, are all great folks. Um, just, just the variety and availability of stuff is, is crazy to me. Every now and then I step back and look at, at how much things have changed. Brie, to make that transition into brewing as a profession, did you have a, someone train you? Was there a education? Did, did you have a, was there formal training or how did you get going on it as a profession? I didn't, I didn't actually have any formal training. Again, it was, it was kind of um, the, the initial system at Community Beer Works when we started up was kind of a glorified homebrew setup. So it was, it was a lot more professional than brewing in my driveway to be sure, but it wasn't significantly different um, in a lot of ways. So it was, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough at that point in time to not have to deal with a lot of the kind of um, licensing and all that kind of stuff. I left that to other people. So I didn't, I didn't have to deal with that stuff. And I just, I knew more or less the science behind how to, to make beer. So I just kind of kept doing that. I'm sure home brewers, uh, you are living the, the, you know, the fantasy life, right. To be hired as a brewer and then to be hired, uh, by thin man after working for a community beer works, what did they see in you? Do you think, or how did you sell yourself to thin man and, and Mike Chancellor? <sighs> You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been friends with the ownership for quite some time. Um, and I think that kind of how I wanted to take my career kind of to mixed in, melded really well with what they were, what they wanted to accomplish at that point in time. Um, so I think it was just kind of uh, whatever the right word is. It, it was just kind of a good fit. Um, so we kind of sat down and talked about it and uh, it's it's worked out tremendously it's been a really really fun five years i read an interview you gave about five years ago and you talked about how difficult it was the transition to you know working in community beer works and brewing there to translating to maybe 10 times the capacity at thin sure. man right uh, how difficult yeah. is that and what was that like it's i mean it's not the same as hey i put one pound of this in if i was making 10 gallons so i'm going to put 10 pounds in if i'm making 100 gallons right. um i think it's kind of learning learning how to scale things, right? Because if we're doing a test batch, we're making five gallons to make sure that it's going to be good. And then I'm scaling that up at our Elmwood pub location to whatever, 450 gallons. Um, and obviously we want that to be good. Um, I think it's also kind of figuring out how to market things properly when you're making um, five gallons of something or 50 gallons of something. It's a lot easier to to sell such a small quantity. Whereas now, you know, hey, we're we're making a great product, but maybe it's a little weird. Um, you know, I like a bunch of kind of weird esoteric stuff. Maybe it's a little weird. We need to figure out how to kind of present that to the public and make sure that they're going to kind of buy into it and, uh, and join us on our, on our beer journey. Yeah. Which, which beers are your favorite to brew, Rudy? What do you like to brew? I really love brewing. Um, and we, we, we make a ton of Pills Mafia. Um, right now, that's our number one selling beer. Um, I really enjoy brewing that. And then over at Elmwood, at our, our smaller pub location, we've been doing a lot of uh, kind of experimental, for us, experimental lager. So kind of experimental to us means more traditional. 
Um, you know, the American brewing tradition uh, is big and bold and brash. And lately, I kind of like, I enjoy things that are maybe a little more subtle and nuanced. Um, so they may not be our best sellers, but they're the kinds of things that I'm really enjoying these days, both brewing and drinking. And, and which type of beers are, are more difficult to brew? What's the most complex uh, brewing assignment you've had or you've accomplished? We've got, I mean, so we have, uh, we do a bunch of barrel aging of beers. So, you know, we'll let the beer finish fermenting in the normal stainless steel vessel um, that it ferments in. And then we'll transfer it over into a wooden barrel. Um, primarily, we're using spirits barrels, um, a lot of bourbon barrels. We'll also use some wine barrels. Um, and I think that the added complexity of the, the wood, not necessarily knowing exactly what the wood is going to contribute. You know, we have an idea, but every piece of wood is a little bit different. It's a lot different than, hey, here's a stainless steel tank that we can guarantee is sterile and perfect. And there's going to be no oxygen ingress, ingress and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think kind of the, the, the wine barrel aged beers, um, typically the wine barrel aged Belgians things are kind of the most complex, um, when they work out, um, they're incredibly rewarding. And then sometimes they're, they're rather frustrating, but, um, you know, it's all, and then it's always trying to figure out, all right, well, this took a, a different turn than I expected it to, but how do we, you know, figure out what, what are we going to do with this at this point? Yeah. Is it, yeah. how much trial and error is there uh, in the brewing process when you're working on all kinds of different uh, types of brews? There's, there's a bunch of trial and error. I think that, you know, if, if we're brewing um, a new, a new style of beer. Yeah. Um, so for instance, the, the Kolsch that we brewed for 11 day, um, it, it turned out amazingly. Um, but neither Ian nor myself had ever brewed a Kolsch before. So there were a lot of, all right, we read a bunch of books and we read a bunch of papers and, you know, we did a bunch of math and tried to figure out what exactly we wanted this beer to be. And it turned out wonderfully. And I think that, uh, next time we brew that, which will hopefully be soon, um, we're going to make some tweaks to it and then we're going to see what that does. And then we're going to make some tweaks to it. And then we're going to see what that does the same way, you know, if you're cooking at home, Hey, you know, this, whatever dish turned out great, but I didn't add enough time or, you know, there was a touch too much garlic or this or that. I'm going to brew it again and make some small tweaks and, you know, get it to exactly where I want it to be. You, you've already brought it up. Let, let's talk about it. the 11 day power play Colts brew, a collaboration between you and thin man and, and Sullivan's brewing company and our master brewer, Ian Hamilton. How did that come about? So I had known uh, Michael a little bit just from around Mead, town. CEO of Sullivan's, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So um, kind of the, the idea came up to uh, do a collaboration with his involvement with the 11 Day. Um, so we, Ian, myself, and Michael kind of sat down, did some Zoom calls, did some phone calls, did a whole bunch of emails, um, and ended up making a beer I thought was really, really nice. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's been well-received, and it's raising money for a great charity. Yeah. Um, when you describe it as really, really nice, uh, who do you trust to tell you if uh, a beer is good or not? Besides your own taste, it's obvious. But, you know, um, my wife is a, is a good uh, yardstick, typically. Uh -huh. um, you know, I, I have I have. I, I know which people like which styles of beer, which of my friends. So if there's someone who I think will really who has a, a very great, you know, knows and, 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 and ability to critique something of that style, I'll kind of give that to them. And if there's someone who wanted a crazy IPA, I wouldn't necessarily um, give them this beer, uh -huh. but um, you know, figure out who, who are the people you trust. And I just keep kind of running with them. Hey, Rudy, what's next in the world of brewing? What do you think the next big thing is coming down the pike? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that there, there is 
a little bit of fatigue with regards to IPAs. Right now, IPAs are such a huge part of the market. Um, we're seeing definitely more demand for um, lagers and pilsners and those sorts of things, kind of your more traditional German styles of beer. Um, I don't think IPAs are going anywhere. I think they're just going to be a little less of the marketplace. Um, same with fruited sours. I don't think they're going anywhere, but they're going to be a little less of the marketplace. Um, I am hoping we see a little bit of a return of kind of Belgian influenced beers, things, beers that are a little, little maltier brown ales and stouts that aren't necessarily 12 or 14% alcohol. But, um, I think, I think lagers and hopefully kind of Belgian more subtle stuff is, is coming back. That's a hope. Hmm. Last question for you, Rudy is brewing. Is it chemistry or is it art? It's a little bit of both. Um, you know, there's, uh, I, I often say that I wish I paid more attention in high school chemistry when I'm trying to figure something out, <laughs> that's but also that's what spreadsheets is, are for. You know, there's yeah, a lot of right. great spreadsheets out there that, yeah. that help me do my job day to day to day. Um, it's definitely a combination of the two and finding that balance. Sounds, it, in many ways, it strikes me it's a lot like cooking, right? Like being a chef. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's, I, feel, I feel like maybe it's a little more like baking than it is like cooking in that it's, it's maybe not that cooking is an imprecise thing. But there's maybe a little more wiggle room in cooking than there is in baking. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Rudy, thanks for this. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Well, that's this week's installment of Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, our weekly podcast, usually weekly during this time of the year. I want to thank our guests, including Rudy Watkins, who you just heard from. Rudy is the head brewer at Thin Man Brewing Company in Buffalo. He's collaborated with Sullivan's on the 11-day power play Kolsch Brew, and we talked about that, obviously. Check them out at, at Thin Man, either one of their Buffalo locations. Rudy Watkins, thanks to you. I want to thank our earlier guests, too. Um, and we had a great conversation, a long one, with Rich Deitch, who is a uh, sports media expert, covers sports media and NFL media in particular for TheAthletic.com. Went to school at UB, worked around Buffalo for a while. He's been in New York City. He's uh, was a host in Toronto on Sportsnet 590 up until recently. Spent almost 20 years at Sports Illustrated. Again, our thanks to Rich Deitz for joining us on the podcast today. want to remind you, this coming Sunday, of course, the Bills play in Nashville at Tennessee Titans on Monday night. We're there the night before Sunday night, and we've got a special party coming up this Sunday night in Nashville. They're having the Bills. They're welcoming uh, Bills Mafia, Bills fans, at uh, the Tin Roof Bar, 346 Broadway in Nashville, on Lower Broadway in Nashville, kind of the main uh, party and uh, entertainment area. A Buffalo Bills uh, uh, Buffalo Bills takeover at the place on the weekends, uh, starting Sunday at uh, in the afternoon. Sunday at uh, 2 p.m. And then later on, 7 to 9 p.m., we'll be there live. Just meeting and greeting and formally talking to Bills fans. This Sunday, we'll be there 7 to 9. The Tin Roof, 346 Broadway in Nashville, Lower Broadway in Nashville. Hope to see you there if you're making your way to the game or if you're listening in Nashville. And if you're a Bills fan, come on out and say hello. We are brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. Available at bars and taverns and, of course, available for um, uh, your purchase in many of these locations as well. So look for Sullivan's, Sullivan's Brewing Company in Kilkenny, Ireland. It's imported directly from Ireland. I want to thank our producer, Pat Fellball. Another great job today. We'll be back again not too long from now, maybe a week or two. I haven't figured out if we want to do a show next week. But we'll be back for another installment of Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills.
and the beer. 